Hi, guys. Back to me for a loop. I'm just sitting back there in the back waiting for T.J. McGinty to get up here and share his testimony. So I thought you were just pulling my leg. I realize now that I've misread the schedule. So while I pull my notes together, let me tell you, there was this guy goes to the doctor. You know, it's rare that a lawyer ever hands anybody tell them to speak loud. They do say, shut up, please. Can you hear me? this guy uh, uh, goes into his doctor's office for an examination and uh, doctor Looks at him and he says, Ooh. I says, How am I? He said, Well, uh, why don't you bring your wife in? So he goes home and the wife comes and she sits in with the doctor and says, Well, I gotta tell you. He said, Your husband's got about a week to live. He's going to die. He said, now there is one possible way to say it. He said, you've got, to, you've got to eliminate all stress from his life. Uh, when he gets up in the morning, find out what he wants to eat for breakfast, whatever it is, cook it. Um, when he comes home for lunch, or you take lunch to whatever he wants, bring it. And dinner, ask him what he wants, whatever he wants for dinner. Everyone's fix it for him. Whenever he makes love, say, yes, honey, anytime you want. You've you, you got to remove all the stress from his life. Say, so if you do that, I, I think we can add, uh, I, I'm confident we can add at least 15 years to his life. So she gets back in the car and driving home, and, and the husband says, well, what did, what did the doctor say? <laughs> she looked at him and she said, you've got a week to live. <laughs> Where um, 
It's uh, an age of the self, self-actualization, self-realization, self-fulfillment. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, on and on and on and on. And I want to, um, and we're also at a time when um, many people are being beaten down by many different things in life. <coughs> what side of the tracks you were raised on, uh, your relationship with your father from the past, or your mother with the past, or where you're living with family members. There are enough things happening today to assault uh, a person when you feel you can feel beaten down and unable or unwilling to try. And I'd like us to take some time and interact around the story of uh, Gideon. Uh, and I also have some slides. And while I'm pulling them together, I'd like you to turn to Judges. And I need uh, three people to read. And uh, preferably, just for consistency's sake, in the NIV. And so if I can get three volunteers to help me in the Judges, uh, I'll show you where to go. Uh, okay. <coughs> what do you have? Okay. Okay. Uh, just write this down and we'll, we'll get to it. Uh, the first one, the first reading will be Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Okay. 1 through 15. And then the second reader will be, uh, <coughs> be up the second reader. Okay, what's your name? David. David. We're going to do Judges chapter 6, and you'll pick up at 15. I mean, where the brother left off at 15. You'll read chapter, verse 16. And you're going to read all the way down uh, to the end of the chapter. Okay? But because this is a Bible study about the Word of God, I, I generally like to go through the scripture so you'll understand what we're reading, why we're reading, and you'll be able to pick out for yourself uh, your own insights, okay? I need a third reader who's going to start at Gideon uh, chapter 7. Thank you. What's your name? Phil. Phil? Phil, I want you to read in Gideon chapter 7 starting at uh, verse 1. And I want you to uh, read that. Okay, I'm going to get this marked up. Yes, I want you to read down through um, the end of verse 23. Okay? 1 through 23. Why don't we open uh, with some prayer right quick? Uh, Lord God, I just pray that you would open our hearts to the ministration of your word by your Holy Spirit. Teach us today, each of us, what you would have us learn from the story of you. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Remember in Romans, uh, Paul tells us that the Old Testament was given for our instruction so that we would have hope. All right? The Old Testament was given for our instruction 
with the view in mind that it would give us hope. That's from Romans. So let's go through Gideon's and our first reader. And would you stand, please? Yes. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of the Midians was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain cliffs, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalites, and Eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and they tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the, when the Israelites cried out, cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, oak, oak, uh, Oprah. The belonged to Jewish, uh, right, <clears throat> where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But, sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, he asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Thank you. David. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Get in reply, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, <coughs> and from an ephah, a flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread. Place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. 
and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was an angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and he did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on a newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die, because he has cut down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is God, he can defend himself when somebody breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jared Baal, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowlful of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Thank you. Gil? Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The, the Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hand, in order that Israel may not boast against me that their own strength is saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. <coughs> the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 
Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Kurah, and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Kurah, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples that settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could, not, could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend of his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with force, with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretations, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianites camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them, with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow your earth and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just after they had changed the guard, they blew the trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. So we can stop there. Romans 15.4 For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now, if you go back to Judges chapter 6 with me, I want to... Describe the scene for you that has already been read. The Israelites are a farming, agrarian society. They spend their time furling, planting, and then harvesting. And right before the hook, the Midianites and the other eastern peoples invade the land like locusts. They just blanket the horizon and they rake the land and take everything that the Israelites have been working for all season. And just when they're ready to do the harvest, 
the interloper comes and takes everything. And because the people who are invading are so great in number, the Israelites flee to the mountains and the caves around their growing areas, and they hide out. They hide out. There's nothing they can do in the face of this invading army. Everybody's terrified. Everybody's hiding and watching their life's work wiped out for people who haven't lifted a finger to do the work. And so here is Gideon. And look with me now at, at uh, chapter 6. And I'm reading verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down on the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, in order to thresh wheat, you're either going to take a very large flat basket or something akin to a rake, and you have to have a wide open area so that the wind can blow. And you take your basket or your rake and you throw the grain up in the air so that the wind will blow away the shaft and what will be left is the wheat. And you keep doing this over and over and over until the shaft is largely blown away and you're left with these pure kernels that you can work with. So here is Gideon with a wine press. Now a wine press is just a, a round tub. You put your grapes into it and then you can either take a handle and you kind of grind it down and it'll, it'll lower as you turn the handle and it presses the grapes and out comes the wine. A completely inappropriate tool for threshing wheat. But when you're afraid and you don't have the proper tools, you do whatever it takes. And so here's Gideon hiding out in a cave, afraid of the enemy, using a fork to dig a ditch. That's, that's basically what he's doing. If you and I saw him, we would look at him and say, what an idiot. What an idiot. Any, my kid knows that you cannot dig a ditch with a fork. And so here is Gideon threshing this wheat in a wine press, and the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ, alright, and sometimes you do a study on it, but you'll notice through the text, he also refers to him strictly as Lord and sacrifices before him. This is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate status, alright? But the angel of the Lord comes to him, and I'm looking again at verse 12, at Gideon hiding out, digging a ditch with a fork, and it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, what? Mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. Now, at one reading you would say, this is really sarcastic. And if you and I had said it, we might say it like, 
Oh, look, Gideon, mighty warrior. But the Lord has come to Gideon, and without a trace of sarcasm or irony, he is addressing Gideon as a mighty warrior. First, we'll note that God came to Gideon. And he gives Gideon an assignment about one thing he wants Gideon to do. And the very first thing that Gideon says is, well, if all of this you're saying to me is true, why is all this hell falling on me now? Okay, if, if you are God and you're going to help me, why am I in this predicament? Of course, we know when we go back to the early part of the, the chapter, it says... Uh, that God did this as a what? Punishment. For what? Their continuous idolatry. Often when difficulties come into our lives, and difficulties can come from many reasons and many sources, so don't think that I'm saying every difficulty you have in your life comes from this source. But here we know it because God tells us in the Bible that it it is here because of the persistent, habitual idolatry of the Israelites. So he let the eastern peoples come in and take the product of their hands because they have not worshipped him correctly. So Gideon asked the question, well, okay God, if you are going to do all of this for me in the future, why haven't you done it in the past? And here's a point of instruction for us. Sometimes, sometimes, the predicaments that we are in, we have, are the products of what? Our own hands. Our own hands. The man who says, I don't understand why my wife is always upset with me. (laughs) Well, let's ask about adultery. Let's ask about whether you ever are concerned about how she's doing. Do you ever open up to her? Or Paul who said, shape up or ship out. Why does this happen to me? Well, maybe it's because of your gross absenteeism that the boss made this. So many of the predicaments that we may have, we just have created sometimes because we just refuse to worship God the way he chooses to be worshipped. And we don't see the causal connection. And God has warned us time and time again how to do it, what to do. We ignore it. The stuff comes and we get upset with God because he did what he promised he would do if we did not obey. You with me? So here's Gideon hiding out, confused about why he's in the predicament, although he's part of the problem and not part of the solution. Making or trying to thresh his wheat in a wine press, and God comes to him, looks him in the eye, and says, mighty warrior. And it must have made Gideon feel about this being. This being. And one of the things we need to learn as men is that God sees us as we are, all our faults, all our problems, all our hang-ups, or what's the modern term, all our baggage. But God also sees us as we shall be. 
He sees us also as a finished product in Christ. Holy, whole, dynamic, complete. God sees the work in formation even as he sees the finished product. There's a wonderful story about the French sculptor Rodin. And he's walking along some road with the colleague. And he sees this giant stone. And he stops. And he just looks at it. This big, ugly piece of rock. And he and his friend have an appointment to go somewhere. And his friend is anxious to get there. Why are you stopping to look at this rock? Because Rodin stopping in front of it had seen the sculpture Balzac that he was going to create. But his friend saw only the big lump of rock, and so it, it just did not fit into their schedule. But, Ball, but Rodin saw it, and he just saw what this rock could become. And his, his appointment had to wait because of what he saw here. He finally got that rock carted away, and it became what the sculpture now that is called Balzac, one of the greatest sculptures in modern history. And that is the difference between, or one of the differences between God and man. Let me read quickly from Ephesians 2.6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let me repeat part of that. God raised us up with Christ and, past tense, seated us. Not will seat us, seated us. Ephesians 1, 19-20. Christ also is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realm. Same word where Christ's position, seated. Same word is used for us as believers. We are seated with Christ, both in the past tense. So let me let me share this principle. <clears throat> Dwelling in eternity and seeing the beginning and the end at the same time, God not only sees us as imperfect, he also sees us as completed and perfected in Christ. Now, this contrasts with us as men. <coughs> Man judges man's present by looking at his past. God judges man's present based on his future. That is why our assessment of other men can be so wrong. Uh, just let me ask you, are you the guy who says, well, we don't want to invite him. He will, he'll never come. He'll never change. or He'll never do. 
You know, the country that they said would never, ever be evangelized was Korea. Evangelists said, don't send anybody else over to Korea. If, if the country is impenetrable to the gospel, now the largest Christian church in the world is in Korea. We judge from the past, and, and we forget that we have past. And sometimes we judge ourselves from the past. I have been a loser. Therefore, I always will be. I have been a drug addict. Therefore, I always will be. I have been unfaithful to my wife. <coughs> Therefore, I always will be. My father was this. I'm going to be the same way. My brother was this. I'm going to be the same way. And if you do that, you are looking at yourself or other men in an unbiblical light. And the challenge for us is to be able to say, God, I, am, I see so imperfectly the work that you are doing in this man's life. But I know that you are doing something. One reason is because I'm praying for him. So help me not get fixated on his past or his present. Help me see the potential that you have put in this man's life. And keep working with him and working with him and working with him when it does not seem to make any sense to do so. And so that you ought to be the man that can go to the loser on whom everyone else has turned his back. And when you look at him, think to, think to yourself, mighty warrior. Mighty Or when you get some uh, assignment from God, we have to learn to see ourselves, yes, as sinners, but we have to see ourselves completely as God sees. That God comes to every man in this room, not simply to Gideon, but to every man in this room, whatever your background is, whatever your baggage, your hang-ups, your problems, your past failures, and God looks you squarely in the eye and says, mighty warrior. And he comes at a time when it seems completely illogical to give you that designation. If Gideon was rushing down the hillside, sword in hand, alone, shouting to the Amalekites that I'm kicking your butt out of Israel, then we might understand God saying, mighty work, but hiding in a cave, hoping that the enemy won't steal his wheat and trying to thresh it in a wine press is not the time, logically, for God to address him as mighty work. But that is exactly the time that God Unless a man's self-esteem is based on the understanding that he is a sinner redeemed by God, who will perfect him in Christ, his self-esteem, whether good or bad, is false and will lead to self-absorption, expressed either as pride or as depression. 
Okay, self-absorption expressed either as pride or depression, and each leads to conduct apart from God. So when we go on with the story of Gideon, and God gives him this assignment to go down and wrest the land away from the uh, invading hordes, he says to him, but look at with, with me at verse 15, Judges 6, 15. He said, but Lord, I mean, this was not said quietly. This is a protest. This is utter disbelief. But Lord, how can I save Israel? Let me run by you, God, in case you have forgotten my qualifications or lack thereof. Number one, my clan is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. Weakest tribe. Weakest tribe. Nobody of all the other tribes is going to look to Manasseh for leadership, God. They might look to the tribe of Judah, but they're not going to look to the tribe of Manasseh. In fact, whenever you, this is the, I think this may be one of the few places in the Bible where Manasseh is referred to without the prefix the half-tribe Manasseh. Every other place you find it is the half-tribe Manasseh because they come from the line of Joseph who had been sold into slavery, his two sons born in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so it's always referred to as the half-tribe Manasseh, but not here. Look it up, you'll find it. It's just an interesting word today. It's a first lack of qualification we don't have any political power. We don't have any economic clout. We're nobodies in the kingdom of Israel. And worse, worse, God, in case you did not know, I know you are mission, but obviously there was a lapse in your understanding of who I am. There was a lapse. Not only is, is my clan the weakest in the, in the half-tribe of Manasseh, the weakest clan in the weakest tribe, he said, I am the least in my family. When we have family parties and everybody gives their opinion and I start to give mine, they walk away. And when I ask them, hey, let me tell you about the movie I saw last night, they yawn. God, this is Gideon. Gideon. You're talking to so, uh, now that you understand this, now that you understand this, am I off the hook? <laughs> am I off the hook? And God says, I will be with you. And you will strike down the Midianites, but I will be with you. Have you heard that phrase before? When Moses sees the burning bush and God says, Moses, I want you to go to the head of the richest country on the earth at the present time and look him eyeball to eyeball and I say, I want you to let the basis of your economy and political power of those are Hebrew people, go. Let them go. And Moses said to him, God, God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to them? 
and say, let the people go. And God's answer to him was quote by quote the same thing. He said, certainly what? I will be with you. See, the issue of his qualifications was irrelevant. Now remember when Moses started out and he killed that one Egyptian at the age of 40, that is when he felt he was God's man at God's time to get the people out of Egypt. He was ready and was wondering why God was so late in giving him the express assignment, not just the implicit assignment, to get the job done. In his prime, military ruler, known all over the country, interviewed by Barbara Walters on CNN all the time. <laughs> He's ready. He's the man. Now he is 80 years old, hiding out in the Midian Desert, tending his father-in-law's sheep, old, Barbara Walters does not call anymore, he is not speaking before CBMC anymore, and he is a has-been fugitive. And now at 80, God says, I'm ready for you to do my assignment. And now that he's ready, from God's perspective, Moses feels himself completely unqualified. He says, God, send somebody else. He fusses with God several times in this story. And so maybe uh, somebody here is struggling with an area of weakness in his personal life. I have no idea what it may be. Maybe uh, somebody here is struggles with lust. I mean, actively struggles with it. Maybe somebody here struggles with a temptation toward drugs or alcohol or laziness or racial prejudice, you know, or bigotry. Whatever it may be. Whatever it may be. And you say, I, I just, I just can't get over these things. And I'm tired of trying. And God says, look, if the Son sets you free, John 8, 36, you will be free indeed. And you don't have to struggle with cycles of repeated sin. You don't have to feel like you are not growing spiritually. You don't have to be uh, constrained by fear, fear of death, fear of losing your job, fear of losing your health, fear of losing your reputation, fear of heights, fear of flying. doesn't matter what the fear is. God says to you, I'm with you, mighty Lord. Now, not only that he, does he say that, but look with me back at verse 14. God has given Gideon this assignment. And God says something that comes up often in the New Testament. The Lord turned in him and said, Go in the strength, what? You have. Oh God, just, you know, I'll lead a Bible study. I just got to get one more course. I need to get one more Bible study course under my belt. God, I feel that you may be calling me to some form of ministry, but I've I got to get my act together first. 
God, I feel that I ought to give my life to Jesus Christ, but I'm not ready. I'm not fit yet. I've got to jump through a few more spiritual or moral or good conduct hoops. And then I will be ready for you to use me. Jesus says, feed them, and they say, God, just in case, we know you're omniscient, but just in case in your omniscience, you have overlooked, <laughs> you have overlooked and failed to appreciate something, I want to tell you that we only got five fish and three loaves of bread. <laughs> and he says, give them to me. Give what you have to me. And then what do you do? Prayed over it, he blessed it, and he fed the multitude with what? Stuff left over. And that's what God is looking for men to do. To go in the strength you have. I'm inadequate. Praise God, you're inadequate. I'm not ready yet. Praise God, you're not ready yet. God is not looking for men who are able. He is looking for men who are called. <coughs> and ministries fail often because we focus on men who are able rather than men who are called. And we look at this, 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 man, this man, he can't do this. This one can't do this. He doesn't have enough education. He doesn't have enough this, that him. But is he called to do it? Then if he is, then we encourage him to go in the strength you have. Let God multiply it just like Now when, Mo, when Gideon fusses with God about his lack of qualification, about the fact that God brought on this heat without advance warning, he never told us this was going to happen which is, of course, not true. And after all of that, God does not criticize him. He doesn't pick him up with a divine hand and fling him to negative infinity. <laughs> he just says, go in the strength you have, and he continues to exhort him to act. And he says, now look, uh, Gideon, um, first thing you got to do, you got to tear down the worship sites, the Asherah poles, which are um, poles of false worship, and the Baal altars. You got to tear them down. And of course, for Gideon, this is out in the middle of the town square, and you got to be scared that if you do it, the other people are going to come around, and as they were going to do later. Uh, beat you or kill me for it. And so Gideon, and I'm not criticizing Gideon, Gideon didn't do it in the broad daylight. Now God is with him, and God has expressly given him the assignment, and Gideon sneaks out at night to do it. So let me give you another principle that we want to In the process that God uses to perfect us, 
faith in the center. And the process that God uses to perfect us in Christ, we are required to exercise faith. There is no way around being a man of God and living by faith. It is, it cannot be done. It cannot be done. It is easier to make your horse flop than to be a man of God without exercising faith. And so Gideon has to go and he has to tear down the symbols of worship in his life in order to take the next step with God. And so I have to ask you, as, as my brothers in Christ, what are the personal idols in your life that God has been telling you you need to tear down so that you can go to the next step with me? Is, is that idol your reputation at your law firm? Is it the amount of money you earn? Is it everybody thinking you're the baddest, coolest guy in town? Is it success? Is it important for you, for people to know you and say, man, it's in your journey, it's amazing. Best trial lawyer in town. He's really successful. And then God would come to me and say, McCarran, I need you. I need you to tear down that altar before you can take your next step with me. And I want you, preferably, to do it with your own hands. Tear it down with your own hands. There was a, a time in my law practice where I had never lost a trial. Never lost a trial. And I came home to my wife, and I was boasting about this. Hungry. Most of them. Most of them. That's good. Oh, baby. Number three. Do you realize that in 15 years, I've never lost a trial? But oh, I was humble when I said that. And she said to me, Well, of course not. And I'm thinking she's saying, Of course not. You are a man of God. You are a man of faith. But she did. She said, God cannot trust you with a failure. I tell you, I have never been more offended and hurt <laughs> my wife has never told me I was dumbfounded. And I, this gentlemen, I did not respond in a godly way. <laughs> I was angry. Angry. How could you say that? You're supposed to be my helpie. Let's turn to Genesis chapter. Let's <laughs> get real about this. And she said, no, really. God knows that if you lost, your faith would go like that. You're not ready enough in Christ for him to let you fail. And the reason I got angry with her is because I knew to my bones that what she said was true. Bill McCurin was too concerned about his reputation. I was too prideful. 
to be available to God. God could use me so long as everything was smooth and I always succeeded and people looked at me and said, there's a winner. As long as I could do that, fit that profile, God, I'm your man. But God, don't put failure in front of me. I don't want to go that way. Don't want to go that way. <coughs> Next stage, did you lose the trial? I sure did. <laughs> I sure did. I not only lost that, I lost one after the other. And then I got to the point, you know, I said, God, what am I doing? Because I said, I'm putting my law practice in your hands. But I didn't mean it this way. <laughs> God, I want you to be sovereign in my life. Now, let me explain to you, God, what I mean by sovereign. <laughs> sovereignty. Okay? And God, as we go on, I'll tell you when I want you to put bumps in my road and how deep they can be. But I'm pleased, God, it's very important. Check with me first. <laughs> check with me first. And I was a check with me first man. And God has dealt with me and dealt with me and dealt with me. And so I can say, Lord, okay, I'm putting my law practice in your hands and I don't know what it looks like. But I'm trusting you to have my eternal best interest at all. Better than I do. So we'll take it one day at a time. So that gets us, thank you, to the next principle. To be God's man, we must leave the results in God's hands. When we focus on the temporal outcome, we wind up trying to manipulate the results rather than obey God and participate obediently in the process. You hear me? So when you say to God, God, I put myself in your hands, trusting that you will work things out for my best interest as you see it. And if you do that and mean it, God will take you up on it. And that means you can no longer try to manipulate the outcome and focus on temporal outcomes. You cannot do that. And to the extent that you do, you will remove yourself from the race and tell God that you are not available. <clears throat> so, we have to tear down those poles. What are you worshiping in your life? And you have to say to God, I'm available, God. I've taken that next step. I've torn down the poles, and just like with Gideon, he results, they wanted to get rid of him. They wanted God protected And now Gideon says, okay, God, you have come to me. You have spoken to me face to face. You have given me an explicit assignment. I have followed your instruction. I've torn down the Asherah poles and the altars to Baal. What? Just to make sure that I haven't 
misunderstood that you want me to fight all of them. I want to do a little test. Just one little test. Don't get angry. I want to put this fleece out. And then you make it wet and everything around it dries. Then I'll know, I'll know that, that, it, that I wasn't sleepwalking. That you did talk to me face to face. That you did give me the least in the clan, the least in the family, and the least clan in the smallest tribe in Israel, this assignment. So he wakes up in the morning, the fleece is wet, the ground is dry. And so Gideon charges down the hill. No, no. He says, God, get, you know, there's a possibility that me, God, come with me. <laughs> Look out there one more time. <laughs> and it, remember, it says like a swarm of locusts, they invaded the land. Now, I want to get this right, because I don't want to, I just want to be a godly man. I don't want to misinterpret your will in my life. <laughs> do you want me to go to the wife I divorced and apologize? No, you could not want me to do that. I'm about to walk out on my wife. You want me to go back and reconcile? No, I, I did not hear you right. I've been at odds with my father. We have not been on speaking terms for 10 years. And you want me to go to him and ask him to forgive me for my attitude? That I did not hear that right from the scripture. My brother's upset with me. I didn't do anything to him. And it says in the word, if your brother has ought against you, you go to him. No, just to make sure that I didn't misinterpret this. God, I'm going to put out the fleece this time. I want all the ground to be wet, and I want the fleece to be dry. And you can kind of bet the dollar that Gideon was hoping that when he got up in that morning, that fleece in the ground would all be the same. But it wasn't. And so he said, okay, I'm going to go to my wife. And I'm going to ask her to forgive me. I'm going to go to my father that I've never spoken to. And say, Father, I haven't been the son I'm supposed to be for Christ, but you forgive me. To go to your brother who's mad at you illegitimately and say, Brother, I don't want you to be mad at me. I want you to, I want to reconcile for the cause of Christ. Okay, God, I understand. I understand. I'll go. So, he takes his man, and um, God says, okay, Gideon, call the men together. So Gideon calls together the 32,000 fighters. <laughs> and God, and he's, and he's laying out the battle plan, laying out the battle plan, and God knocks on Gideon. Come here for a minute, I want to talk to you about the battle plan. Well, God, I got it all worked out. Like, no, just let me talk to you. <laughs> Uh, I want you to make an announcement. Anybody who's nervous or afraid about the battle can go on. Uh, <laughs> could, you re could you repeat that, God? So hoping that maybe five guys will leave. Gideon goes out and 22,000 of the 32,000 So it goes from being impossible odds to doubly impossible odds. So he sucks in his head and he says, okay, guys, here's the game plan. Gideon, come talk to me. Yes. He said, look, Gideon, you, 
get to in men. What? <laughs> come here, come here. Look out there. You remember swarms of locusts, okay? He said, look, I want you to go, and I want you to tell anybody who drinks water standing up like this, they stay. Everybody else you see home. Okay, goes back. 300 men stand up and you drink water like this, and the others get down on their knees at the shore and they drink. 300 men on their head. And now you know, we know that Gideon is scared to death because in chapter 7, verse 10, by Lundis, and I'll uh, start at verse 9, during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am giving it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, did you hear what I said? Not some little skirmish on the fringes. Attack! So if you are afraid to attack, why did he say that? Because Gideon was sweating bullets. <laughs> All right, Gideon was sitting over there. They don't have toilets in the old days, but whatever hole it was, he was just, just running right through you. <laughs> running right through. <laughs> just going, that's you gotta understand Gideon's state of mind. You went through three hundred men, and God said, tell you the plan of attack. I just want you to go down. Because I, I understand where you are, Gideon. Just go down and listen. So Gideon goes down, and he hears the Midianites in, interpret this dream. And now, after God has spoken to him face to face, given him an express assignment, told him how to do it, told him step by step, had the fleece once, the fleece twice, now Gideon says, I'm ready. I'm ready. So he gets his 300 men together. Um, and it is interesting, this 300 men, because I do want you to focus on, um, on this. And just as an aside, I just want you to think about this, because this is Gideon, and this is Bill McCurry. <coughs> When God calls a man, the man often says to God, it is not the right time, or I'm the wrong man. When God calls a man, the man often says back to God, it's just not the right time, or I am not the right man. I reminded of a little story of a woman who went to Uganda, saw a little uh, boy herding some cattle, and she went over to him. This little boy was about six at the time, and she was just drawn to the boy. Uh, the young African boy, she put, sets him down in her lap, and she starts to tell him about Jesus Christ. <laughs> Today, that little boy is the president of Uganda. His name is Musavir. He's one of the leading evangelical Christians in Africa. 
and wish you could read his speeches. It would blow you away. Because she didn't say, it's not the right time. And I'm not the right person. Okay. The next one, just before we get into this. God often has to place a man in unreasonable circumstances for his own glory and for man's edification. Alright? God often has to place a man in unreasonable situations for his own glory, liberty, and for man's edification. And gentlemen, I, I cannot impress this upon you enough. And I don't want to offend you when I say that. God's chief concern, first, is his own glory. You understand? His glory. In uh, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, it says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth. the man whose heart is perfect toward him. And it, it doesn't mean the smartest man. It doesn't mean summa cum laude. It doesn't mean the one in the congregation that everybody said, that guy is dynamite. <clears throat> it may be the person that everybody ignores and walks past. And that's the one that God says, you know, that man's heart is perfect. He trusts me. That's the one I'm going to use. <coughs> Okay. In Ephesians 4, 11, 13, 11 through 13, it says, We come to the full stature of the fullness of Christ as we minister our gifts one to another and in fellowship. Do not be a lone ranger out there. That's a sign, that's an indication that something is wrong in your walk with God. Yes, we have to stand alone, but God did not send, even though the odds were completely unreasonable, God did not send Gideon down there alone. He sent him with 300 men to be in fellowship with because he has created us to minister to one another in fellowship, not being a lone ranger because you can't get along with anybody because you're so headstrong or you're so insecure you can't take criticism. We need to minister in fellowship. Okay, let me move quickly. <coughs> so, Gideon takes the men and he divides them in three groups of 100 and he gives them each a clay pot. This pot is not transparent. <coughs> And inside is a candle. And they are going to run down from three different angles onto the Midian camp. And at a signal from Gideon, they are going to break the clay pot. And, and so the, the candles will be seen. And when the Midianites saw all these candles, they fled. John 1, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was light, and that light was the light of men. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Matthew 5, verses, beginning at verse 14. You are the light of what? The world. You, you and me, we are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine. Before who? Men. Men. Why? So that they will see your good works and glorify God. Not to say we're good people, but to say God is great. So here these men running down with 300 clay pots and they break them and all of a sudden there's this light. And the enemy sees it in the field. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What frightened the Midianites, the enemy, was the light. But the clay pot had to be broken in order for the light to be seen. And gentlemen, here's my final or next to final principle. We must be broken in order for the light in us, which is Christ, to shine. The clay pot represents our fleshly selves. The Old Testament, this is the Old Testament version of the story of Gideon of Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So when we make ourselves available to God, our earthen vessels must be shattered for the light to be seen. <clears throat> and what will God have to do to break your earthen vessel? For me, among other things, it was losses at trial. What will it be for you? Uh, loss of your business? A reversal in your economic fortune? Health? Poor health? Sudden ostracism within your family? I don't know what it is. And I don't presume to know. Just the principle that in order for Christ to live in us, 
we must be crucified in him. Thank you.